What's up, everyone? I'm Katherine Rudder, and you're listening to Life in the Fast Chain. On this episode, I have Todd McDonald back on. Yes, he and his wonderful podcast voice are so back. And I have Richard Gendel Brown on with Kevin Rudder to discuss tokens. So this episode is all about tokens. Both Richard and Todd have written a few blog posts on it, and so I learned a lot from both of them. I recorded with Richard and Kevin a few months back, and I felt the conversation was too good to be sitting in the black hole that is my computer. So thank goodness Todd agreed to come back on the podcast and record with me last week, because this episode would not be the same without our R3 token guru. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Todd McDonald back in the his house. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> Thank you for having me back, Catherine, after all these weeks. I know. It's been so long. What have you been up to? I don't know what I've been up to. I've been traveling <laughs> a lot. Nothing. Just hanging. <laughs> just hanging. Watching some TV with my been kids. waiting by the phone. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm very happy that you you joined me even though uh, you haven't been on in a little while. That's right. Let's let bygones be bygones. Agreed. But while you were gone, <laughs> yes. you did write this blog post that I was reading about tokens. So you've been doing a lot of stuff with tokens um, and very cool, but I still don't really understand all of okay. that stuff. Sure. So your last, you've written two blog posts on a couple, tokens, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, at least two. And There's one coming out next week as well. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Okay. So three, probably, mm-hmm. by the time this goes out. And the last one I was reading was the um, Corda and Settlement, Let's Get Atomic. Yeah, yeah. One, at one point, you get a little technical. A little I bit. I don't understand. Like okay. the Atomic um, But it takes XVP. a village. I, I got some uh, input on that one. Yeah. Oh, oh, good. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, I guess I'll start with just a general question about okay. this blog post. So first off, what is the cash issuer... Corda Cash Issuer Repository. Okay. Okay, sure. So that is something that Roger Willis on uh, the Corda development team put, has put together over the last few months. And mm-hmm. very simply, it's just a set of tools or really a guide mm-hmm. for how others can issue value onto Corda. So uh, if you think about um, if you think about maybe it's best to think about this in like with the stable coins out in the out in the wild now. Mm-hmm. So what that really is, is is there's money that's put into a bank account somewhere, and then that money is issued onto a ledger or a blockchain. In some cases, it's, it's uh, Ethereum. In this case, it would be onto, onto Corda. Mm-hmm. So there is a medium of exchange uh, that is, in effect, issued onto uh, the Corda network, and it can be used by participants to, uh, to settle. So it's just like any other. So the, you mentioned the XVP. That's really... I sell you something. So mm-hmm. I give you an asset, I give you a widget, and you give me money. That's all okay. it is. Um, buying coffee, buying uh, a bond, uh, hmm. you know, all, any of that. It's, it, you need to have uh, an exchange. And so what the medium exchange does is it, it, it eliminates the need for us to uh, just happen to each have a thing that the other one wants, like the barter economy. And so while all, all these tools are, are uh, ways for uh, folks within the Corda community mm-hmm. to see how they can issue value onto Corda and then use it as a medium of exchange. Um, so okay. that's what that is. And uh, so we put out a video today. We we did a test a few months back. And, and so Roger does this pretty often where he has a, an account at Monzo Bank and uh, uh, Starling Bank in the U.K. Mm-hmm. And in effect, he can issue uh, cash onto Corda from his Monzo account and send it to his, his other bank account. Cool. Yeah. So there you go. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, but like with a lot of things we're trying to do is it's we're trying to put tools out there to see what, how, what other people do with it. Yeah. Okay, that's very cool. I guess I should have also led with why tokens on Corda. Like what's unique about Corda that you'd want to put tokens on it? Right. So uh, when we started looking at this, we realized that um, – if you think about it, the way that Corda is architected, uh, especially with how it handles and, and uses states, mm-hmm. uh, states can be in, in effect are like tokenization. And so we've been doing it for a couple of years. We just haven't called them tokens. Okay. Uh, one of the first, uh, I think, POCs that we were involved in was something called uh, Project Jasper up in Canada. Mm-hmm. And that, in effect, was tokenizing uh, the Canadian dollar. And uh, so there's yeah. a, it's, it's another example of... There's an account somewhere with a bunch of Canadian dollars in it, and they get tokenized. And there's a token that represents the value that's held at that account. 
and they get traded around. In that case, it was a bunch of banks that were trading amongst each other. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, they destroyed all the tokens and looked back into the bank account, and they see all the Canadian dollars are there, and everything's cool. Cool. Yeah. This is pretty... It's interesting because it seems like a simple concept, but it's obviously super um, complex in them. It, well, it's it's it, I think it's a very it, it's a it reduce something to be very very simple, but from there you can make complex things out of it. Got it. So, so another, you can like build off of this. Yeah. Obviously. So, so we're focusing a lot on something called an asset backed token, mm-hmm. and it is quite simple. It's just a digital twin if you think of it, of, of a physical thing or, in some cases, an entry somewhere else. So mm-hmm. all it is That's is, a good way to describe it. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's something that is somewhere else <laughs> and is represented by a token. Um, <laughs> so there's lots of examples for this in, in the real world. Obviously, you can think of an example of a casino as a very good way to do that. Yeah. So while you, in, in effect, you deposit some money <laughs> to, the, uh, to the casino and they give you a token to represent um, value within the casino itself. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. What else have you been doing on tokens? <laughs> what else? <laughs> what else is up? Uh, well, we've been doing. We've been we've been trying to look at everything from uh, from settlements uh, and value and tokenization, and also as it how it extends into existing and the new capital markets. So I guess cool. I, I, I guess that's what I've been doing. It's yeah. Been, <laughs> it's been it's been a little <laughs> bit of work, easy. but. Uh, if you think about uh, the last couple of years, uh, especially 2017, it was, it was, uh, there was this incredible uh, experiment uh, in effect with other people's money with the whole ICO boom. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really was an example of maybe there's a new way for uh, folks to raise capital, a new way for those that are seeking capital and those that are looking to allocate capital to find each other and get together. Now, a lot of the examples of that was, you know, folks that were looking to sort of scam other people or looking to float projects before they're ready or maybe try to raise money when they fail in other avenues. But... All that good stuff. <laughs> but from that, there is really, there are some interesting examples uh, that, I, that we have started to see and others have started to see mm-hmm. across um, both sort of the crypto market infrastructure but existing financial market infrastructure. So there's a ton of interest coming into this. Yeah. From all different angles, from sort of the more crypto end of it, and in the last few weeks we've seen ICE and Fidelity and and uh, and a bunch of others that are entering into sort of more the crypto infrastructure side. Yeah. And then on the more in like on the digital assets, which is what we're uh, more focused on. These are existing market ex- infrastructure and exchanges that are figuring out how can they how can they create an infrastructure uh, that allows for this new uh, token economy to to actually work within the existing uh, regulatory framework. Because at the end yeah. of the day, it's not just that we we all want these tokens to be uh, with, uh, regulatory compliant, but they mm-hmm. also, the biggest thing, and this is, I think, was lost on uh, a lot of people at the beginning of the year and it's becoming more and more of a focus. It's not, it's not even as much from the regulatory compliance side. It's mm-hmm. how can these new assets, these new tokens, um, reach more and more buyers that aren't just... Uh, the folks you would find on Telegram and Reddit. Yeah. And so these are these are institutional investors or mm-hmm. uh, wealth management, uh, family office, others that are trying to allocate capital, um, but they're not going to hold banana coin. Banana coin. Banana coin. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I find the reg stuff with uh, so interesting. I need to have uh, someone like Nipa on our team um, yeah. on the podcast to talk a little bit more about regulatory stuff because I can't even imagine being in that realm. I, I described her in an email this week as uh, the hippest compliance officer around. She's so hip. Yeah. That's a great great yeah. way to describe her. I mean, it's a, it's a low bar. <laughs> <laughs> she has the Instagram handle blockchain queen, so yeah. she's got to be kind of hip. Yes, I'm her agent for that. I'm trying to f- find some buyers. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Actually... Oh, my gosh. Yes. He pointed towards me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Imagine. Yeah. My friends, that, that would totally push them over the edge. They'd be like, okay, you talk about this enough. But bread and rudder is a very good handle. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I like that one. Um, yeah, well, what else is new? Like, what else is going on in the recent news stuff? Because mm-hmm. I have honestly, I ha- I've, I've been bad, and I haven't really been paying attention to 
Well, it's okay. I think maybe space. it's because we haven't been sitting but down, so you don't exactly have the guilt why. of trying to read up on certain things before you get into the booth. I'm like, oh gosh, I'm going to have to talk to Todd about recent news. <laughs> I got to read everything. So, so I guess maybe one thing that's been happening is I talk about stable coins before. There's mm-hmm. been. I've seen you tweet about it a little oh, bit well, recently. Well, well, thank you. I follow you. Oh, that's good. Um, At McDTV. That's right. Todd Vincent McDonald. Love it. Yeah. Uh, so um, there's been – the stable coins have been in the news recently mainly for something called Tether, mm-hmm. which was one of the first uh, stable coins. And, and really it is – there's a – I guess there's – there are kind of three flavors of stable coins. Okay. Yeah. I was about to say, what the heck are stable yeah. coins? Well, they're – they're kind of not that stable, which is also kind of a problem. But Ouch. there you go. Uh, so um, the most straightforward one is the one we already described is mm-hmm. there is uh, really a pile of money somewhere. And for that pile of money, you represent one, $1 or one unit over here is represented as one coin over there. Mm-hmm. And so whenever you want to go back and actually take that dollar out of the accounts, you destroy that stable coin and take the dollar out. Got right? it. But it is backed one to one with some money that sat somewhere else. Mm-hmm. That's one one uh, area. And then another area are these sort of uh, projects that want to, in effect, uh, collapse the last two or 300 years of, of uh, central bank theory into creating algorithmic central banks where they mm-hmm. create and destroy uh, senior shares and bonds and all these other crazy things, um, which is a little bit scary uh, to have a bunch of 23-year-old you know, Stanford dropouts trying to, <laughs> <laughs> trying to uh, do this all in real time. Um, and then the last bucket uh, would is something that's a little bit more of like sort of collateralized stable coins, mm-hmm. and that's you know, make or make or die, and all, some of those other ones. But the first bucket's where the most of the focus is, because uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, area. Because at the end, if you're if you're in, es- in essence using one dollar to create one stable coin, in effect, the cost of that is more than a dollar usually. Because yeah. you, you're, in, you're doing stuff to that dollar, which makes it more expensive than just using that dollar. Yeah. So there has to be a reason for that. And Tether was created because a lot of the uh, crypto exchange infrastructure couldn't have access to bank accounts or to USD. Mm-hmm. And so Tether was a vehicle, sort of a lubricant to move things around the system um, outside of just moving around with Bitcoin. Uh, the challenge with Tether is no one's actually ever been allowed to open up uh, the the vault to look in to see how much of a pile of money they have. Okay. <laughs> I got so distracted by watching you open up a vault <laughs> well, now, and look down yes. into it. Okay, yeah, that seems I like talk a with my hands problem. A bit. Yeah, well, so it's a problem cause, cause because it, it's, there's no audit or there's no, no one knows how much is there. Yeah. And, and so it's on the, the full faith and credit of Tether, which no one even knows who these people are, really. Yeah, how are they going to get, like, credibility then uh, for people well, to trust them? Well, there's— uh, so, so if you open it up, you look down, yeah. and there's nothing there. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the old switcheroo. So th- that's been a constant tension in for the last year or two mm-hmm. where they keep saying they've had an audit, but they're kind of not really an audit, or the auditors they hire are conflicted. Mm-hmm. And recently there has been a challenge for people to withdraw U.S. dollars uh, from the sort of tether ecosystem, which okay. led to more and more uh, worries. And then their one bank account through Bitfinex, where most of these tethers are sort of uh, utilized, mm-hmm. uh, Noble Bank uh, has, is kind of going under. So Ooh. you have all, every, all the makings of, of uh, kind of a big shitstorm, actually. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's what's happening in the background. But on top of that, uh, there's the real – I think one of the other drivers for Tether being under trub, uh, under pressure is there's the creation of sort of better stable coins or sounder stable coins. Okay. So Paxos, Gemini, uh, and a few others are issuing these stable coins. But now in the Gemini case, it's actually uh, held at State Street. Or in yeah. the Paxos case, there's a, a reg- there's a regulator and an auditor saying, yes, there are actually all that pile of money behind the scenes. Hmm. And so what is usually the case is that – uh, good money chases out bad money. And so last week or this week, you could you basically you could buy a tether dollar for you know ninety five cents or ninety cents mm-hmm. and where you'd have to buy a, a Paxos dollar for a, a dollar and five cents. Weird. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> but things happen for a reason and and, yeah. and uh, obviously over time they should both go back to a dollar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, in my experience, in, in previously to this, I was a currency trader, 
And when there's a, and when there's a big basis, when there's a big spread like that, mm-hmm. uh, your first reaction is great. That's a free ten cents. But there's almost always a reason for it, which means there's an embedded risk somewhere. And gotcha. basically, what it comes back to is that you have a ton of risk to the original counterparty. Mm-hmm. To the, there's counterparty risk of the of the person, company, bank, or bankrupt bank <laughs> yeah. that has been issuing these stable coins. Huh. And so that's what that sort of ten cent spread is representing the risk premium of all of this. So a uh, few folks have said that the whole crypto world is like this. It's like a petri dish where we are rerunning financial history, um, but in a massively condensed time frame. And this is something that I've seen before, and many people have seen before. When mm-hmm. you when you create these pegs or these uh, uh, artificial constraints, um, and stress happens when mm-hmm. there's a, when there's a run on liquidity, or there's a run on risk. Um, that's when these uh, that's when these uh, wobbles occur, and sometimes the wobble turns into a full panic. Do you think that? This will turn into a full panic, or oh. what would you say? Oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, no, you know, I have no idea. I'm just dropping all the. Facts. Well, no, I mean, no. <laughs> no well, if people tell you they're, they, no one really knows, yeah, because no one has the the information, so it's all speculation. And while the crypto economy is large, it's not systemically large yet, so it's yeah. it's still very very hard to tell. But it is it is darn entertaining. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. it. Thank you for explaining that to me. No problem. Catching me up on my uh, <laughs> my industry news, yeah. which I should be better about. That's all right. You get a pass. You have a lot going on. That's true. Yeah. I do have a lot going on. <laughs> Unfortunately, the listen- listeners didn't get to hear my uh, ranting and raving about this week. No. It's but we're good. recording on a Friday. We're recording on a Friday. It's going to be a beautiful Great. weekend. I'm going camping this weekend. Oh, where are you going? Uh, I have no idea. In a tent somewhere. Really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's really nice. With your family? It's uh, with my six-year-old son. Oh. Yeah. That's really sweet. Yeah. I'm so scared of being outdoors at night. No, it's you shouldn't be. This I is, know I we, shouldn't. We be. are in effect bringing Costco to the woods, so there'll be lights. <laughs> yeah, and, that's true. And there'll be all sorts of. Uh, You're not messing around food. with the tent. Of course not. It'll that's be fine. really nice. Yeah, it'd be good. Oh, that makes me want to go outside this weekend. Maybe we'll <laughs> have an R three camping trip. That'd be so fun. Yeah. We really should. I feel like our London office does a lot of, like, picnic-y kind of fun things like that. Yeah. Let's a do A good it. amount. Done. All right. Cool. You bring your Costco tent. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll bring the recording materials. <laughs> Around the campfire. Oh, yeah. We'll, Actually. Yeah. We'll, that's a really good idea. We'll tell uh, spooky crypto stories like the, the attack of the stable coins. Oh, man. Uh, brought it all together. That was great. Thank you. Love it. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Thanks for having me. I have Richard Gendel Brown in the office with Kevin Rudder here. Thank you guys both for joining me. I have Kevin for backup when Richard gets uh, too confusing for me. Never so. been so offended. <laughs> Sorry. I sometimes I need a little backup. So thank you're you both. Than you think, Kevin. Oh, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. Thank you both for coming in. How have your days been? This week has been a little bit crazy for me, I have to admit. My day's been insane. I always every time it feels like I'm on a stuck record. Every time I come to New York, I always say I should come here more often and You and do then, say that every time every we time. have it recorded. Yeah, and then I never <laughs> do, so then when I do get here I'm just back to back all day, every day. So I'm packing a ton into um two and a half days. But so almost entirely client meetings. This is one of the few internal meetings I've done since um since getting here. Yeah. And um and it's great. We'll get onto this a bit later, but as you know we shipped Corder Enterprise and they're just seeing how many people are building on it, which is you know is, is good and has its challenges as as people are really building on it and really putting it through its paces but it's just just great to see the um the interest yeah definitely it's very nice having you in the office as per usual richard uh kevin tell us a little bit about research we haven't had you guys on very recently but i want to hear what's the latest yeah so we we've completed a couple papers recently i think one thing that i want to highlight now that we're starting to begin to to see uh, people prepare for the fall semester is that our research department has, has started to help more with our university uh, engagement, and we're planning our MBA programs uh, and, and student groups that we're going to be working with uh, this fall. Because the last semester, spring semester, we worked with a bunch of teams, a bunch of MBA teams on different uh, startup ideas, and we had two different startups that are building on Corda 
uh, Fintium and Elfi uh, awesome. come out of that experience. So we're hoping to scale that up a little bit more uh, with new startups this next semester. Awesome. Thank you for the update, Kevin. I'm sure we'll hear more in the future. I need to coax you guys to come back on. Um, so, Richard. Right, I was going to say, it's great that the Fintium guys are um, one of the groups um, in the London office, and it's just great to have them like on site with us um, building, you know, building yeah. the business. It's good for energy. They, it's kind of like yeah. mutually feed off each other. They come to the technical guys with questions. It's like good for the atmosphere, I think, having them around. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's very nice having some of the partners in the office. And everyone loves Elon uh, and the Elfie team in the New York office as well. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. He's a very funny guy. Um, so, Richard, you mentioned Corda Enterprise. So that recently launched. So has that brought any relief to your team or have things just gotten a little crazier? It's, um, I, th- I think they're all a bit shell-shocked. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's, gone, it's gone crazy. So we, we knew the, the, the run-up to getting Corda Enterprise ready would be, would be insane, just the amount of you know, testing we have to do, finishing off of features, the documentation, the enablement for clients, for the fields, for partners, and so forth. But, of course, when you then ship the code, that's, that's really when the work begins because people yeah. start using it. And these people have been waiting for this. So they, you know, they, you know, I mean, we've talked about this in the past, but you know the features, you know the enterprise database support, the application firewall, the um, the, uh, the the enhanced performance, all, all these things that people have been waiting for, they're now using. And um, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, the more people who use it, the more they put it through its paces. You know, we discovered they were planning to use it in ways we hadn't quite necessarily expected. I love so, that. So um, <laughs> so we um, there are, no, they, they uncover bugs. You know, we expect this yeah, in software. Yeah. So so um, and, and we planned for it. So we have you know the, the engineering team. We've allocated um, you know a, a number of them to to working on client engagements, helping them get it deployed, help get the support done at the same time as planning um, everything we need to do for the rest of the roadmap to get to get the next version of Enterprise out in a few months and, and the next version of Corda open source um, because obviously as we, we keep those two things compatible and mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of features coming out for both of them in the future but it's um, yeah no rest um, no, no rest, no for, rest for anyone exactly <laughs> uh, but the timing in hindsight was perfect because you know the normal rhythm of, of a company is certainly you know in Europe August is when things s- slow down but we've really managed to get a ton of productivity out of all of us all of ourselves because you know, we're really busy in the middle of August. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the summer has not slowed down business at all. Um, but talking about Corda Enterprise, Corda Open Source, can you talk a little bit about the Corda Network? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so perhaps the first thing I should say is um, anybody who's interested in, in where we're going with this after I've described it, um, you should definitely get yourself on the Corda Network mailing list. Mm-hmm. So as, as most of your listeners, hopefully all of your listeners know, we do all our technical thinking um, in public with the community, with our devs out there debating and arguing with each other at times. Um, there's the Corda Dev mailing list, which is groups.io slash Corda-dev. And there's now the Corda Network mailing list, which is groups.io slash Corda-network. And the important mm-hmm. thing there is, and, um, and James Carlyle is leading this, and you, you'll hear more from him. We should have him on this podcast as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. What he's leading over what we call the... Um, Perhaps, in, perhaps not particularly excitingly named um, um, summer of policy is we're, <laughs> we're, we're just going as fast as we can and as detailed as we can to outline proposals for how this global network of, of Corda nodes can actually be operated. So we have a proposal and it's just a proposal we want and we're getting a lot of feedback from people on how a, a, an open, um, transparently governed, um, you know, openly managed um, network of Corda nodes supporting multiple different applications provided by different business network operators, different startups, different third parties, different not-for-profits, how they can, all these different applications can coexist on, on a global network with interoperability, both within that Corda network and, of course, then using Corda's features to interoperate with other platforms as well. But how to do that in a way where the governance is, is right from the start so that no one party, including R3, can have outsized control, where we make sure that the, you know, the consensus providers operate to the right standard, we can come to agreement on how we do upgrades. All the stuff that goes wrong on, and we've seen go wrong on some of the other public platforms, we want to learn from that, use the experience of you know, people who've been through those battles, you know, most notably Mike Hearn and, and his experience in, experiences in the past, and make sure that this this this, this shared network uh, um, works to everybody's benefit. Um, I mean, I know I um, we always joke at him on this podcast about how I inadvertently offend lots of our competitors without even trying to, <laughs> but it is the case, it remains the case that only Corda, I strongly believe only Corda amongst the enterprise blockchains was designed to allow multiple different overlapping applications to, to deploy and to operate on the same network in a way with true interoperability and privacy and scalability and Corda Network is the is, is the way we deliver that so um, yeah, James and the team are hard at work Corda-network at groups.io so is the email address groups.io slash Corda-network is, is how you get to it mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah, join the conversation and um, um, enjoy the, um, the summer of policy <laughs> Richard I have a question about the governance because it's I think it's a, it's a really fascinating topic uh, 
in with decentralized systems, right? And I think it's a different model than a lot of people are, are traditionally used to with like a centralized, you know, entity making all the decisions as, across payments or capital markets, all these different use cases. I think one interesting thing, thing I've heard recently is like people ask like who governs the internet. I think outside of technical and technically inclined people, you know, I don't know who p- people really know. And I think that's that seems like an ideal potential end state for for Corda. And I, does that connection like potentially make sense, or like how do you see governance evolving? Because I think I think it's a pretty fascinating subject with, with it, Corda. It is because you wouldn't think governance would be interesting. You think it'd be really really tedious, and shouldn't you spend time on the beach in August rather than writing policy documents? But it's <laughs> but it, it 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 gets to the heart of what we're trying to build here and, and how how these how these networks should work. So I mean, the internet's a good example. So you could say you know the internet is highly decentralized. There's 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 a, there's a whole form of you know, rough consensus through the RFC process and, and the protocols that are implemented. Um, you know, in, in, in the routers and the software that, that runs on the network. But even then, you see power dynamics at play. So, you know, when a dominant player on the internet, take Google, for example, you know, decrees that um, that you know, all all websites have to be um, you have to be TLS secured, or they, they they will lose their search search engine ranking. You know, that's just that's just one commercial entity, um, you know, making a policy decision for the safety of their customers. But there's no formal governance process that makes it so. It's simply you know decisions made by by individual firms in their own interest and for those of their customers and and the the same thing applies with um, with blockchain networks I think something that people miss is consensus is a really difficult multifaceted multi-dimensional topic so if you think about the internet you know the internet is almost easy by comparison because you know, if you've got two computers or you know two two networks, how can you route a piece of data from one to the other? Well, you need to know what the protocol is. You know, how do I? What's the handshaking? How do I know and how, how do I understand the message back from the other side to say they received the data and you, know, you can bridge between different networks? You've got to do that in blockchains. You know, if I need to be able to send a message from you from me to you, I need to be able to find you. We need to agree what protocol we're going to use. But there's additional complexity. I don't just send you a message. I often have to send you proof that the data I've got is correct and was validly processed. And that proof might have a long chain of provenance behind it that goes back months, if not years. So the question isn't just do we agree on how the data's moved now? We have to agree on which rules were in force at each moment of time in the past so that when I send you a transaction from six months ago or three years ago, when you see it for the first time and, and review it, you need to establish whether it's valid or not. Am I trying to fool you? Am I trying to steal from you? So you need to independently ver- verify that data. But the question of whether it's valid or not depends in part on what the rules were at that point in the past. So there's there's a huge amount of things that we have to be in consensus about. So when you want to change one of those things, and a really trivial example would be, you know, what's the maximum message size that, that we agree to allow on the network? Because you have to have some limit, otherwise you could just you, know, you could just, just spam someone with messages that, to fill up their disk. So there has to be some, some 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 agreement about what the largest message size is. Well, how do we decide what that is? Who gets to decide? If we need to change it, who needs to be part of that process? And, and that's what James is working on. So his proposal for a, fa- a governance model for for a foundation that will be in charge of these things. It, it, it debates those kinds of topics. And again, it sounds so tedious. You know, the maximum message size, but there could be winners or losers in that kind of debate. You know, maybe small nodes would suffer if the message size went up. If you go from a big one to a small one, previously valid transactions then become invalid. So there are certain transitions that simply can't be allowed. Um, so it's trying to think upfront about how we can get the right model in place so that these that there's a forum for these things to be debated and you know, no one or some group of parties can come together to the dis- to disadvantage all the others. There has to be a way to, to resolve these disputes. So, it, um, yeah, it's fascinating. One, one quick question I have, I was just because I'm curious and I just would love to pick your brain on this, is, that, is how do you think these, these governance questions, they're somewhat similar to what, what you see with cryptocurrencies in some ways, but I'm curious how maybe the approach might be slightly different towards governance in the, in the enterprise world. Uh, than, than what you're seeing maybe in cryptocurrencies. And, and obviously, each cryptocurrency kind of has a different governance structure, like Tezos, for example, has governance built into the ledger itself. I'm curious if, if the approach is, is maybe slightly different, or do we think about things slightly different, or, or is it actually kind of similar? I think it, I think it, it probably has some similarities. Um, but I think the thing, again, sometimes people miss is this is always inherently a political process because you've got a large, let's imagine we're successful with a large number of people on this on this open, you know, transparently governed network. Um, no matter how you set up a voting system for, let's just say, adjusting the maximum message size, you know, it's just something really mundane. It doesn't matter how you set that up. 
if, if the majority of people on that network disagree with what was decided, they can simply block it by just ignoring it. You know, the, ultimately, the, whether it's the economic majority or the majority of notes, um, you know, they, they, if they don't want to go along with it, they, they can avoid doing it. So it almost seems like the governance, there's, there's a meta aspect to it, which is it's, it's not only a decision-making body. It shouldn't also be a, only be a decision-making body. It's also a consensus-forming or opinion-soliciting um, process so that it's possible somehow to, to establish you know, what the preference is amongst the, um, the people who actually have the ability to say yes or no and, and find a way for those debates to be had because you know, no matter how well you implement it on chain you know, with the Tezos model or EOS or whatever it is you know, if the output of that process is something that the vast majority of people don't agree with it won't happen um, because you end up with a fork where the, you know, the people who are trying to enforce it are on, on, the, wrong side of the, on the wrong side of the fork so, so, so it's as much about trying to find, find a way to, to understand what is the art of the possible as, as well as then mandating what the change will be. Yeah. Is that how I see it? So. Awesome. That's really cool, color. Yeah, I, you know, I've seen some of the docs that we've had around this stuff, and it blows my mind. So I, I, I'm sure we could talk about governance, you know, forever. Maybe, I don't know, James Carlisle could come on at some yeah, point. Yeah, I definitely want to have him on. Yeah, every time I talk to both of you, you guys blow my mind. So let's move on. Uh, so you're working on a blog post um, but I want to talk about just the beginning part. So you talk about WYSIWYG and WYSIWYS. Is that how we're going to say it? Yeah. Well, because you've been saying what you see is what I see, what I see is what you see. Hmm. You've been saying that for so long, but we never actually made it into to a thing. So tell me a little bit about that story. How did that come about? Yeah, so I kind of feel like such such an idiot. Um, I, exactly as you say, Catherine, I've been I've been pitching this this thing for enterprise blockchain in general and, and, and Corda in particular for what feels like years now, which is you know, I think the, the problem we're trying to solve is is take um, you know firms, people, anybody any people who are trying to transact with each other and all have independent records of, the, of those deals and, and, and what's been agreed and make sure that each party is in consensus with the other literally that what you see is what I see I know mm-hmm. that what my computer says and that it's a computer that I control that I own that I trust therefore I, I can rely on it I want to know that when it tells me something not only that it's true but that I know for sure that what your computer tells you because you trust your computer what it tells you is, is exactly the same and mm-hmm. that way we know there won't be a dispute we won't disagree about how much we owe each other or all the rest of it so you know what you see is what I see almost feels like almost like the, almost like the seminal the defining characteristic of I think what we're trying to do with enterprise blockchain mm-hmm. and whether it's been Astrofusion Lendercom or what Tradewind Markets are doing or you know, any of these people who are building on Corda. Core, that's that's why I believe they're using it and the problem they're trying to solve. So 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 what you see is what I see. It was only um, a, a few weeks ago that um, somebody played that idea back to me and completely just nonchalantly as if it was as obvious to them as it was to everybody else, they abbreviated it to W-Y-S-I-W-Y-S. It, what it, you see it always is what, takes me a while to get there. <laughs> and I got it wrong. W-Y-S-I-W-I-S, I think. Wizzy whiz. I didn't whiz. notice. Wizzy What you see is what I see. Um, and the reason why that, that sort of resonated for me was because it brought back such amazing um, echoes of, of the 1990s. Um, so I was, I was this geeky child, you know, other people were buying pop magazines or soccer <laughs> magazines and uh, football for my friends back in the UK. And I was, um, I was buying computer magazines, Computer Shopper and you know, PC Pro <laughs> and all these, all these really sad things in, in the early 90s. And really the, sad <laughs> things. I got that. <laughs> hey, you are where you are because of those, exactly. those magazines. But the, but the big thing, I guess, in the late 80s, the 90s was you know was, was it was it goes back to you know Bill Gates Microsoft the vision of a computer on every desktop and and the implication of that and the thing that drove you know the PC market and just drove you know, billions if not trillions of dollars of value for Microsoft for Intel for you know for you know, I guess Lotus back in the day you know, all those all those you know, pr- um, software companies operating system companies and importantly you know, personal productivity companies was it was the you know, it was almost like the democratization of of spreadsheets of being able to produce documents and desktop publishing it, it was moving from the world where if you wanted something typing or you wanted something turned into print you had to give it to you know you had to give it to an assistant you had to give it to a third party there was no way for so professionals as part of their day-to-day job to produce you know you know production you know copy co- copy ready print ready materials mm-hmm. and, and part of the reason was okay you know laser printers needed to get cheaper and you needed better monitors and all the rest of it but a fundamental problem and it was the breakthrough of, of, of Apple and Adobe and, and, and you know, Microsoft had it with Windows as well was this thing called WYSIWYG what you see is what you get and the the idea there was moving from a model of you know text-based screens where you you could type your document but it would just be rows of text and you had no idea how it would render when it actually printed on the printer 
printer, um, moving from that world to one where what you saw on the screen was what actually appeared out of the printer. So if you made it bold, you saw it bold on the screen. And, and if, it, if making it bold you know, made the line a bit too long, it would automatically move the last word onto the next line. And, and, and then when you printed it out, the last word was on the next line. So you could see exactly <laughs> what the implication would be. So you could now change the margins a bit. You could edit it a bit to bring it down to the number of pages. You know, the desktop publishing revolution, it transformed the media industry because obviously it had huge, huge structural effects on, on how that industry worked. The, the world was changed by WYSIWYG. And it was in some ways a kind of consensus system. You know, what I saw on my screen is what came out of the um, the printer. Okay. And, and it was... I mean, and WYSIWYG was just one small part of it, but it drove a much bigger thing. But so WYSIWYG was a nice sort of like, sort of like you know, poster child, or like a banner or a phrase that encapsulated that entire movement and you know, the trillions of dollars that were value, value that were captured, were created for the um, for the, the producers and, and captured mostly by the consumers. So as we now look at what we're trying to do with with blockchain, um, I mean, WYSIWYG, what you see is what I see. It already exists as a term. You can go, you look on Wikipedia and there's a small write-up. It comes from things like um, you know, um, multi-party. Um, document editing and things, but it strikes me that as an industry we should we should co-opt that for enterprise block enterprise blockchain because mm-hmm. it captures exactly what we're trying to do. If, if the '90s and uh, early late '80s, '90s, early 2000s was all about personal productivity and massively improving the um, the productivity of of companies, just transforming their economics by you know, making you know, individuals so much more productive they could get more done in each day. Blockchain for me, enterprise blockchain is all about transforming the economics of entire industries. And it strikes me that if you know, WYSIWYG is how we transformed business and created all that wealth in the 90s and 2000s, WYSIWYS is how we do that now. But you know, the low-hanging fruit of optimizing businesses has been achieved. The hard problem now that enterprise blockchain enables, especially Corda, is optimizing entire markets and industries, as, as we're seeing you know, firms like Finastra and, and all the others do. So, um, so yeah, WYSIWYS, I think it captures, it captures <laughs> it's the zeitgeist, it captures the spirit of the blockchain age. Well, I thought it was funny because on Slack, I watched it all go down, and uh, all of a sudden I saw WYSIWYS, and I was like, why? Just because there are so many, like, W's and I's, and what, what, Y's. Uh, and then I learned, I read a lot more about WYSIWYG because I was like a toddler <laughs> to, to age myself lower. But uh, I did not know what WYSIWYG was. And now reading more about it and having you talk about it, it's a really cool kind of transformation. I feel like we're moving into... Wizzy whiz. Yeah, exactly. And I just remember, um, maybe I'm trying to say, because you always try and date where you are in an industry. And I remember, again, because you know, what, you know, what did some kids get for Christmas? You know, they, you know whatever they wanted. <laughs> I, I wanted a printer for Christmas. So I, so I got my first printer connected to my old, actually connected it to my ZX Spectrum. I don't know whether they made it out <laughs> to the US, but this tiny little 48K machine. But so, And this printer was color. It had fonts and it had color. But there was no WYSIWYG. There was no way to, um, there's a really rudimentary word processor. So if you wanted it to change font you had to you had to include these weird codes in your text you'd have sort of like you know you know you know dear mrs brown and you write letter and then if you wanted it to be bold you'd have to do you'd have to and it was different for every printer you had to do sort of like two two open brackets and a c and a closed bracket and a number and you had to know that seven was violet and one was red oh, see and, and, i had it yeah, easy all, i didn't all have to do stuff, any of that yeah. stuff coming up so you then think, well, okay, so that's what you had to do then. You know, where are we in the blockchain evolution? You know, so the fact that yeah. you know, do we do we need more graphic user interfaces for blockchain? You know, when you're when you're installing it, you know, are we are we still at the sort of you know, the dot matrix printer end, or are we at full color laser printers? You know, where are we in the evolution of WYSIWYG versus WYSIWYG? Yeah. Richard, I love the macro point that you made, like kind of behind the story, right? Like there's there's been a wave of like improvement with, with within the firm from a technology perspective. But when you say like you know optimizing at at the industry level, or I see that as cross firms hmm. and, and getting different firms that maybe have uh, you know different pain points that they all share, or there's some area where they don't really have a competitive advantage within an industry, and they all share the same either cost expenses or maybe different new industries that they can improve upon. You know how can they mutualize those and all come to agreement on whether it's shared facts or you know capital markets transactions and either mutualize that those costs or create new industries that benefit you know everyone like yes yeah, totally that macro point is, is pretty fascinating change in how people are thinking about innovating yeah it's totally really cool yeah so let's continue to talk a little bit about this blog post can you tell us a little bit of background um one thing i like about your writing and i've said this a million times is that uh it's very easy to digest even if sometimes i, I get a little jammed up so this is why i have you on the podcast to explain the things that i don't fully understand so can you tell us a little bit about what you're writing 
Yeah, totally. So, um, well, first of all, thank you for that. Um, it was it's probably post quarter enterprise. You know, we've been so heads down getting it ready. I thought mm-hmm. I need to you know, take some time out in in August, which is when we're recording this, just to just to remind myself of you know what else is and refresh myself on what else is going on. And and I went back and read some of my old blog posts from 2013, 2014. You know, a lot of the in quotes visionary stuff. Some of it very naive. <laughs> some of it no. Some of it actually turned out true. Um, and um, and the and, and and I was trying to. Um, I think by writing so the way I sort of form thoughts is by forcing myself to write something so I thought I need to summarize everything that's been going on in, in the token space for the, for the last few months and the last year or so because you know we designed Corda to be able to model any kind of agreement any kind of instrument um, and so it's you know, it was it was always is always designed to be able to model any kind of token whether it's got an issuer whether it's you know it's um, it's issue issue alerts whether it's a depository receipt you know, all that functionality is in there but of course whilst you're down there building the platform you're not as focused on the use cases mm-hmm. so I thought well I'll challenge myself to sort of like you know, imagine I wasn't working for R3. Um, imagine I was I was still sort of just trying to be an observer or a writer. You know, how would I describe what's been going on and, and what it might mean? So, so I kind of did two things, and I'm not sure I've quite nailed it. But I thought, well, maybe the first thing I should do is is take a leaf out of the, 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 the those those old series I used used to write. I used to write stuff called you know, a simple explanation of, and I explained <laughs> it, how the payment system worked or how security settlement worked. So I thought, well, I'll take a stab at a really very basic, probably quite naive, um, a description of you know, how, to, how do companies raise funds today? You know, what, who are the different players and then what happens after they've raised funds? So nothing to do with tokens, nothing to do with anything like that. So I'm just trying to explain things like, well, you know, if you're a company seeking to seeking to grow, well, maybe you'll you know, issue more equity, maybe you'll borrow some money. Um, there's different ways of doing it. You know, and, and, and typically, you, know, you, you, you need help. You need someone to advise you on whether you should issue equity, whether you should borrow, whether, you know, what, what structure you should use. Often you need someone to help you find the investors. You need to go on a roadshow. They can advise you on what you know what would be good anchor investors. You know, if you get these guys, and other people will follow in. You know, what price should you do it at? Um, um, yeah if you need the money sooner rather than later and it could take time to fill it or you just want assurance maybe you even find someone who will will guarantee you a price and if they can get more for it than that that's upside for them if they, if they sell it for less then they've lost money all that stuff these and these are all they're all, all called primary market activities because you're about to issue something you know so with some debt or some equity for the first time there's something that some asset that didn't previously exist gets gets issued into the market and it gets you know, sold to people who now own it they're all primary market activities and you know, the name we give people who help you do that are investment bankers. You know that's that's the core of what investment banking is, at least to me. Um, and then there's a second thing, which is well, once somebody's bought these things, there's someone who now owns your bonds or owns your equity. Um, one of the reasons they're willing to hold it, or at least one of the reasons they're willing to pay the price they are, is they believe if they have to sell it or if they want to sell it, there'll be a willing pool of, of other people to sell it to, and it, w- it will be easy to find them. So there's a whole secondary market infrastructure. There's um, there's a whole you know, collection of firms and, and infrastructure that makes that possible. So so once the asset is issued, it usually lives in a central securities depository. There's, there's, there are custodians who, um, who, who, who keep track of who owns the individual slices down to sort of like an investor level. There's exchange Exchanges, there's broker dealers who make markets. There's there's the whole sort of like you know, all the stuff you think of as of the other part of, of banking. And that's, so you've got the primary market, which is you know, how you first you know, how, you, how you first issue something new and get money for it. And then there's like the second hand market, if you like, you know, secondary market infrastructure. So if that's if that's the um, if that's kind of like the model. You then I was then thinking, well, how can you mo- how can you map what's going on in the in the token world to that? Because we've seen a lot of things like you know you look at where Ethereum came from. You know you know Ethereum's token. Ether exists on on Ethereum, but they didn't raise money from Ethereum. It didn't exist. You know where they actually got the original, you know, the original crowdfunding, the original investment, whatever word you want to use. It was primarily, if not exclusively, from Bitcoin Bitcoin users. So, so if you like, you know, the the, the, the primary market from which the capital that that, that funded the, the Ethereum network was was sourced was Bitcoin. But once that token, once that money had been raised, once those cryptocurrencies had been had been raised, you know, the the development happened, and then at some point the Ethereum mainnet went live, and the place where the tokens that were issued, these Ether tokens that exist, where they're managed, where they live, you know, where they're secured, isn't a central securities depository. It isn't, you know, it isn't a custodian. They live on the Ethereum network. So you could almost say, you know, the the, the primary market from which the, the 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 Ethereum funds came from was Bitcoin, but the secondary market infrastructure where it lives, where it's custodies, where the custodies, where the wallets are 
you know, all that is the Ethereum network. So, so they're different. You know, where the money came from and where the resulting token lives are two different places. And you see that with lots of other things. You know, even with ICOs that um, that produce um, produce ERC twenty tokens, you know, maybe they sold for Bitcoin and Ether, so they sourced from two different places. But the thing they issue, okay, sure, it lives on the Ethereum network, but it's a different form. You know, it, it's it's an ERC ERC twenty token. It's not the native token of the platform. And then there's other examples like you know EOS and Tezos, where where the money came from one source and it was deployed somewhere else. Why do I say all that? Because you've now got this interesting model, which is if you're thinking about, um, and, and there's a two by two, because every blog post needs a two by two. Um, if you <laughs> think about that primary, secondary, and crypto and non-crypto, you can you can say things like, well, today's you know, today's traditional model, the you know, primary market, the capital is sourced from you know, sourced from fiat investors, and the resulting tokens live in a CSD and and, and um, you know, traditional um, secondary market infrastructure. You've then got the um, the you know, the full crypto model, whereby the the funding for a an initiative is sourced from the crypto world, like you know, Ether, Ethereum did from Bitcoin, and the resulting token lives in the crypto world. But there's two other boxes, and I think where people haven't been, um, where we haven't explored enough in the way we write, is you know, what could be in those two other boxes. So there's the there's the um, there's the you know, there's the obvious one, which I've not seen many examples of, which is you know, there's there's this deep capital market, there's this deep primary market, which is people who've got lots of wealth in you know Bitcoin and Ether. Um, it surprises me when you draw this model. You know, why haven't traditional companies said, you know what, we're going to issue more traditional equity that will live in a normal CSD. We're going to issue more traditional debt that's going to live in a normal CSD. But the people from whom we source the cash and the investors, it won't be traditional fiat investors and mutual funds. It will be people who want to invest using their Bitcoin or their, or their Ether. So that would be an example where you know, the, the primary market from which the, sort of the funds are sourced is, is the crypto market, but where the tokens that are subsequently issued, the assets that are t- subsequently issued, are actually the traditional financial markets, secondary market infrastructure. Structure. So, 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 it just made me think. Actually, you know, maybe there's something there that um, so some of the, the the wealth investment banks are they missing a trick? Is that is that is that is that something they could be doing? But the reason why they might not, and it gets us to the fourth box, is the the tokens that are being issued. They don't behave in many cases like normal equity or normal normal bonds. Either they've got smart contracts attached, they've got more complex business logic, so they could be a bit different, um, or or they um, you know, they they're held by different people, and people want to move them around twenty four seven. You know, they just don't be, they, they don't behave like um, the things that existing systems know how to manage. So there's a reason they're deployed somewhere else. But the final piece, and the word I was going to get to was is the piece that I think people have missed completely is what about um, assets and, and uh, other companies who are raising money or assets that are being being funded by traditional money, you know, pounds, dollars, euros. But when they are finally issued, they're not issued into a CSD. They're actually issued onto a distributed ledger so that they can have smart contract, um, you know, they can have a complex business logic. They can be um, combined and um, you know, sort of they can be combined with other assets. They can interoperate. They can be traded 24-7. Um, and of course, that's happening. You look at what, say, Tradewind markets are doing. There was a great interview with um, with, with Matthew Trudeau of, of, of Tradewind um, um, online um, a week or so ago. You know, they, they, there's gold being tokenized on the quarter blockchain. So you've got you no, know, but 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 it's not being funded by you know Bitcoin or Ether. It's being funded by fiat. But it mm-hmm. doesn't live in a traditional depository. It lives on a public. It lives on a actually not currently public, but when quarter network is live, it lives on a blockchain that um, that allows it to, to 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 move around. So that was a really long rambly way of saying you know, if you distinguish between primary secondary and then look at the two different types there's there's a huge amount of innovation in you know traditional sources of cash on a modern enterprise blockchain um, and then you look at why people are deploying on quarter why is Astra why is the why Astra there why is you know why is Tradewind and all the rest because you need settlement finality for real world assets you need the ability to know who's holding it so you can be compliant with various regulations you need to be able to integrate and interoperate with existing systems there's a whole bunch of reasons why Corda is the preeminent or should be the preeminent platform for the deployment and management of these these assets um, in, um, you know, post issue. So, um, so I think there's a lot more we need to do to to explain how that can work. But it was, um, yeah, it was a useful thought experiment. Yeah, that that blog post is really insightful, and you explained it very well. So you've been very busy. I see Kevin's gears yeah, turning. <laughs> I'm like, should I stop talking? Because Kevin's gears well, are Richard turning. Always get, Richard always gets your thing. I love that quartile, that kind of quartet approach you went through. I just one thing that I think is really interesting is like just to break down like the two worlds, right? There's like the cryptocurrency world. Crypt, I call it crypto Narnia. Yeah. Uh, you know, 24 <laughs> 7 markets, uh, global really uh, assets, uh, resilient marketplace. No one's really, I mean, they're not like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum aren't, aren't in a technically completely decentralized, right? But there's no real single entity operating these markets. 
I just think this is this this kind of outside shadow financial system. And then there's the existing financial system, which is really, you know, siloed based on particular regions. Like the NYSE, for example, is based in the U.S. You need to have linked to bank accounts strictly within the U.S. And there's other types of assets that are traded, you know, in the U.S. And often the banks deal with those different assets being transacted, which uh, on behalf of their customers. And there's these two kind of discrete worlds, which initially began as very different, uh, different with different aims. And it's interesting, like you said there at the end, the two different cases of how some of these crypto asset, the crypto Narnia shadow, you know, financial system world can, can actually kind of begin to integrate into the existing financial system infrastructure. And the fi- existing financial infrastructure is integrating with the crypto world. And you're starting to see more of that, that blend, which at first, to be honest, was, was messy. Mm. And, and I feel like assets flew more smoothly and seamlessly in each of these you know, independent worlds. But you're starting to see some some mixing and crosses and even the, the communities are starting to bridge together a little more like you're seeing at least i'm seeing a lot more people in the cryptocurrency community almost being forced to head towards a more you know regulated and 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 try to work more with existing incumbents you're also seeing you know more of the corporate types looking to issue tokens and we see more and more inbound uh, on that front you know almost daily now so it's really fascinating to see how these worlds are kind of colliding yeah, totally. And it's 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 interesting that you you know you almost you finish that by saying that the amount of inbound and it's that's okay maybe that's just the you know the just the the serendipity that comes from being open. You know, the, you always think of these second order effects from being open source and taking a platform approach. You know, um, I you know, although I designed right well I, I you know we as a group designed Corda to 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 be able to solve a, a broad range of use cases. Yeah, you know, I, I I I never intended it as um, as part of the initial design to be sort of like you know a preeminent token um, management platform. Or maybe that was one of the use cases, but it wasn't what I was shooting for. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, you know, I wake up one day after after Enterprise has gone out. I look at what people are actually using it for. I see these things that are live, and it's almost like the original draft of the blog post, which I renamed, was you know, it was, it, I had two versions for it. But the, the one I preferred was you know, you know, how I woke up one morning and discovered I'd accidentally built the world's best tokenization platform. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> no, that's that's. Awesome, Kevin. I don't want to. No, take that's great. Your, no, yeah. it's all, my I, brain's exhausted. I so. do want to say that that whole time Kevin was talking, it was like he was juggling two worlds the yeah. whole time. <laughs> I wish I had a video of that. I'm gonna have the to. The worlds start. are uniting now. It's yeah. like uh, one world now. It used Combining. To be two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Richard. Did we cover off everything? I have two smart minds in the studio, so three, I want to squeeze three them out. Three smart minds. <laughs> Don't you think like you're like not, I'm just going to keep on being self-deprecating <laughs> yeah. until I like really feel up. At some point it's going to get old, Catherine. <laughs> I've just fallen into your trap by saying three. I've, I'm normally the self-deprecating <laughs> one. So I, know. Like, I got Richard to say he's smart. I got to fit in this room. Jeez. <laughs> that was funny. Well, thank you so much, guys. Everyone, uh, read the blog post. I'm going to link to the uh, quarter network, the mailing lists, and uh, any research that we have coming up. I know that the research team has put out a lot of private research, so unfortunately, the yeah, public have... Yeah, I know. But I, I do it say, makes it so much sweeter when it goes public. We, we have a recent paper on corporate KYC, which is a really interesting topic, which will, will be public very soon, and we've had a, a, a nice pipeline of global trade papers that will also be public, which is great because there's been a big uptick, particularly, I think, in APAC around global trade initiatives, but also globally, worldwide. So uh, those will be public soon. So thanks, Kevin. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life in the Fast Chain. Our next episode is already recorded, and I'm so excited to push it out there because we have a great non-R3 guest who's going to talk all about what he's doing with blockchain at his company. So I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Be sure to keep an eye out on your favorite podcast app. Thanks. Thanks.